It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 11th, 2018, the Angry Mob Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in a closet in Brooklyn. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. You are not in a closet, I don't think. Where are you guys? We're in a recording studio um, and uh, we miss being with you. I miss being with you on this week's show. A terrifying climate change report casts a shadow on just about everything and puts everything in dismal perspective. Then Brett Kavanaugh is a Supreme Court justice. Democrats are angry mobs and men are an endangered species. We will discuss the the fallout from the Kavanaugh confirmation. And then has Taylor Swift turned the election to the Democrats? Apparently she has. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And don't forget, dear listeners, we have our conundrum live show at NYU Skirbel Center on December 12th. It is going to be a glorious night of confrontation with difficult ideas and difficult questions. And it's always a really, really fun evening. And we're expecting to have a great guest, too. So you should get your tickets now. There are just a few tickets left so please go get them at slate.com slash live to join us at the conundrum show on december 12th in manhattan the intergovernmental panel on climate change a group of 91 scientists who have spent years studying thousands and thousands of studies about the effects of human activity on climate issued a terrifying report this week the planet has warmed 1.8 degrees already from pre-industrial levels and without Massive change in policy. The planet will warm 2.7 degrees in a couple of decades from now, possibly a lot more than that in the years to come after that. The IPCC concludes that this will be enormously painful, not just for our children and our grandchildren, but for us, because by 2040, all coral reefs will be dead. There will be coastal inundation, much worse storms and wildfires, droughts, flooding, spread of diseases, tropical diseases to the north, mass migration and enormous refugee flows from the tropics. And there will be places, many, many places on earth where it will be extremely difficult to live for significant parts of the year. Just you literally will die because it will be so hot and humid. These scientists say that this tragedy can be averted only with massive, massive human action and massive changes to the economy, the effective abolition of the use of coal, which is now about 40% of energy, provides about 40% of energy. It would need to go down to about 1% to 7%. A huge expansion in wind and solar power and massively, impossibly high carbon taxes. Carbon taxes that are more than 100 times as much as the tax the Obama administration proposed, which got nowhere. So this was among the most dreadful pieces of news I think we've we've heard and we've talked a lot about how bad the news has been and how disruptive and how upsetting everything is. But this 
is upsetting at a global level. And why, Emily, do you think it's so hard for us to grapple with it? I mean, the standard answer to that is that this is a long-term problem and we are not well set up to think politically about massive collective action to solve something that is not an immediate emergency. The country isn't set up for it. Um, the world isn't set up for it. And individually, the sort of human psychology doesn't grapple with it very well. It's just easier not to think about it because it seems totally overwhelming and unsolvable. This report, though, injects a different kind of timeline into the equation. I mean, I had never seen anyone talk about 2040 in these terms. I'd never thought about this kind of dire consequence in my own lifetime. And I wonder if it could have the power to change how we think, except that the immediate reaction to the report has not seemed to generate any of that. And we're obviously still in this incredibly polarized moment in which, unfortunately, climate change, like many other things, has been a dividing line between Democrats and Republicans in the United States. And so it's hard to see how this report um, surmounts those divisions. And yet, of course, this is all we're absorbing this news as Hurricane Michael is flooding Florida and we're having yet another extreme weather event that is tied to warmer water and warmer air and the kind of energy that that generates. Um, John, what do you think? Well, I think it's a, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, I mean, the first thing is is to, to recognize the distance between what this report says and what the administration's uh, uh, well, what the president's position is, because the, the, the distance between the president and his administration is um, is w- worth talking about briefly, because they're not exactly on the same page in every way. One of the thing, the only way, one of the only ways you solve the collective action problem is that a leader looks at a big looks at the world and says, "This is a huge problem, and we need to address it." And I'm going to use my, you know, leaders who we consider virtuous and who are doing the right thing say, "And I'm going to move my country in the direction of trying to solve this problem because that's what I'm here to do. I'm not here to do small things. I'm here to do big things. And the only way this big thing can be done is with the blunt force of the president's political power." So that's what what that's one end of the scale of the way you may do this. But if you look at the way President Trump has talked about climate change, he is not only in specific terms said that it's a hoax created by the Chinese to make the Chinese more competitive and the U.S. less competitive. But he has also consistently attacked the empirical, well, empirical reasoning or what some people would call the enlightenment um, and the idea that people through uh, expertise looking at data and looking at at what you can um, analyze, come to a conclusion. He's He's got kind of a double blow here against this. Uh, there's, a, there's a real distance between what one would do and what this president is doing. I've reached the point, and admittedly, this may be, you know, I may be totally wrongheaded and this may be a, a bad conclusion to have reached, but I've reached the point that this is a collective action problem, which is actually insoluble, that there is no possible way the world can can muster the political will and the sacrifice required to make the changes that are necessary, that we will keep burning these fuels until it is cheaper not to. And therefore, it cannot be a political solution. We can't look to politics to solve it. We can only look to science to solve it, that the only possible remedy is some incredible scientific breakthrough, hopefully at the level of fuel, that we figure out some way to create energy uh, without damaging the planet at scale in in a very cheap way and that we can apply that very, very quickly. 
which is a very far fetched hope, uh, or as a second, much worse solution, some form of geoengineering to try to to forestall the worst to to say we're going to continue this terrible damage, but we're going to try to forestall it by using some scientific method of of throwing a bunch of crap into the atmosphere to to uh, to help us. But I don't think there is a political solution, and I think the time and energy we spend seeking a political solution would be better spent saying we need funding, massive funding for R&D, massive funding for energy experimentation, massive fund- funding for th- ways to make alternative fuels cheaper and thus thus more attractive in the marketplace. The political will is not going to be there. We're not going to have $5,000 a ton carbon taxes. It's not going to happen. And therefore, let's look to the things that can happen, which is possibly innovation and experimentation that make the markets work better. Is that a hopeless? Am I am I wrong to give up on politics? I think you're wrong. I mean, we just the world signed the Paris Climate Treaty. And when you look at the suggestions for, you know, a kind of gradually rising carbon tax, which would make a huge difference if it was um, adopted on a large scale, it's a sensible measure. Like it's it's within reach. And the other For thing sure. is, I, yes. I feel like those political solutions are entirely compatible and indeed necessary for the scientific innovation you're talking right. about. Because you have to put pressure on prices in order to stimulate the kind of, you know, movement toward renewable fuels and alternatives that are have the potential to make a huge difference and hopefully save us. Yeah, I think the question is, are sensible measures possible in the current American political climate? On this particular question, where sensible is defined as the acts that you would take to ameliorate the effects of something that the current president doesn't believe exists, or that he believes in trying to combat will only hurt all of the constituencies he cares about. And we should also mention, of course, that the um, the Koch brothers actively fund politicians who take positions in the opposite of the of any kind of collective action that would be taken taken to ameliorate this but i also i i agree with emily which is the um the funding for innovation also politicians have to vote for that funding and they're voting for that funding to go to other things at the moment right but i guess i feel like that's an easier get lift than than telling people your your gas is going to cost eight times as much what what do you guys make of the 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 most persuasive conservative case I've ever heard around this. There, for a while, there was a conservative case like, oh, this isn't really happening. Don't worry about it. Now, the most persuasive case I ever read about it comes from Bjorn Lomberg, the Scandinavian economist, who argues, yeah, this is going to be terrible. It's going to be really bad. The, everything's going to melt. It's, all the things that these scientists say is going to happen is going to happen. But you know what's worse is people living in poverty. It's 300 million Chinese people who live as as subsistence farmers rather than living in middle-class lives and that the low cost of energy, low-priced energy while it causes this tremendous damage to the climate and that damage is is kind of uncertain and it certainly exacts a cost. It also lifts millions and millions of people around the world, billions of people around the world and get, allows them to to get out of quite terrible economic circumstances. I mean, I that is a compelling argument. I would find it more compelling if indeed that's where we were <laughs> expending all our extra energy costs instead of in the developed world in which we all have these very energy expensive habits that um, we don't take a lot of responsibility for, right? Like, 
I don't know exactly what the back of the envelope math is, but if you were going to apportion the energy use so that it helped people rise out of poverty, but you took it away from people who are already well off, that would be really different than how we're expending energy now, wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, yes, it would. Yes. And yes. It's, that's like an impossible... I, think it's hard- I mean, what I just laid out is a politically impossible scenario to imagine. Like, that's not going to happen. And so, anyway, I, yeah. You know, we will know in 2030 or 2040 whether these timelines are right, or maybe we'll know in 2025 if things keep moving, if the timeline keeps moving up faster. And I wonder if, let's say that all happens, you know, um, whether, you know, President Buchanan gets, um, you know, is at the bottom rung of the presidential uh, ordering list because basically people said he didn't do anything to you know, avert the civil war. I wonder if the catastrophic outcomes that are predicted here are on the horizon. The lack of leadership will will be seen in, in those kinds of grave terms because there really is only the blunt f- force of, the, of, of a public leader can get either of the two solutions that we've discussed so far going. I mean, either to move legislation towards pricing carbon or to change the funding so that you, you um, inject a lot of money into research laboratories. But making coal plants um, fire up more and helping um, encourage the, the use of more coal is not really um, a solution in keeping with this report. Yeah. Well, I think, John, actually, there's a there's a canard at the initial, uh, just even in your premise, which is that we already know. I'm in New York today. We're all in New York today. Mm-hmm. New York uh, was inundated by a hurricane, Sandy, which caused billions of dollars in damage. There's a huge number of people who transit between Brooklyn and Manhattan, which is one of the the, the most busy uh, river crossings in the world, who are about to be inconvenienced for a year because a subway tunnel was flooded that needs to be repaired. It, it, their life is going to be manifestly worse and, and hugely delayed because of this. So so the idea that we don't already live with it, we are living with it. It just doesn't, it's not, um, you know, that's a tax yeah. that is that all New Yorkers are about to yeah. bear. Yeah, I, I meant on the scale, you know, national scale. Uh, um, but is part of the yeah. problem, David, exactly what you're talking about, that it's there, but we've accommodated it. It's creeping up on us, right? So we're having these extreme weather events, more people displaced, subway tunnels closing, rising sea levels, but it's happening incrementally in a way that we then adjust to. I mean, we haven't even fixed the national insurance plan that means we rebuild in these coastal areas every time. And I wonder if that's just part of the sort of devilish nature of this particular threat in terms of our inability to really um, address it. Yes. I mean, I I think that's a great point, Emily. I mean, we've sort of uh, nodded at this in previous episodes, but there's a strong case that the entirety of the Syrian civil war and the and the cascade of of dire consequences that have arisen from it is a is a climate problem that it that Syria has become intolerably hot it's arid droughts the the life of that people were expecting to have the kind of middle class life they were aspiring to became unattainable and that radicalized people and that causes a civil war and that civil war then spills over in the form of refugee flows that cause a wave of right wing populism across Europe that fuels Brexit like that that itself is a is a problem which which is arguably a problem of climate change which we don't look at as a problem of climate change but it is and and you're right and that that we attribute it to something else 
it's and it makes it even harder to think about. That's a great question. I have a I have a question for you guys, which is what do you think it's what's our obligation or how do we teach our children about this? Do we teach them that your life is going to be horrible? You're going to live in a you know rampant disease and in a, a planet you can barely live on, or do you say here's a here's a thing that's going to be a shadow on your life, but you know your life you can still have a great life and and the most of life on Earth is still really great. I mean, we can't do the former, right? That's just too discouraging, and it's not age appropriate for kids to feel like their lives are being choked off in that way. And you know, there is some uncertainty, and I don't mean to turn myself into a climate skeptic by saying that, but I don't think that's like a useful way for kids to think about this. Um, I mean, I also don't think they should be dismissing it and ignoring it. So I think sometimes when I talk to my kids, we talk about how like their generation is inheriting a lot of big problems and that's not fair, but it also means they're going to have huge opportunities to do things and solve them and like get out there and make the world a better place. And I feel like that's something, you know, young people want to feel like they have agency. And so that's a way of kind of turning this question towards that. John, what do you think? Well, I, I, I was thinking about it in two ways. One is the next generation and one is the current generation. Again, just briefly going back to what presidents do is presidents give people a place to put their anxieties and whether it's, uh, you know, I mean, I even remember President Obama t- telling people how to wash their hands during um H1N1. The bird flu. H1N1, thank you. So uh, obviously that's purely at the symbolic level, but to the extent that you have free-floating anxiety about things, it is a leader's job to try to marshal energy into one productive direction. So that's the question you're asking about. And I agree with Emily, you can't just say to them, okay, kids, hang it up. It's all darkness and terror in the future. But I do wonder how you then structure the argument for hope, which is that what is the structure that exists that they can get, become a part of that will improve things? You know, my kids have encouraged us to put um, solar panels on the on the roof. We ended up moving to a thing that doesn't have... We, we I don't think you currently can pull city. that off. Yeah. You don't own your building. It doesn't work where we are <laughs> now. But they were, you know, that was the equivalent of what seatbelts were in our generation, which is that, you know, kids encouraged their parents to wear seatbelts um, when they hadn't been doing that before and then smoking for the next generation. Um uh, we've got to do more than that. Can you can you create an argument for the hope that there's a structure to solve these kinds of problems, given where the political structure is right now? I mean, you know, here's here's the only hope that I can think of in that vein, John, which is that when we were kids, there hung over all of us the shadow of the possibility of of apocalyptic nuclear war. And I know that uh, many many children, I was one of them, went to bed every night and and catastrophized about nuclear war and what would happen in the event of nuclear war and imagining my own death in a nuclear war, which I don't think... And it was seriously are, scary, right? Remember the day after? It was, I yes. think I was like 11. We're yeah. all at the right age. Yeah. That show like deeply affected me. We yeah. talked about it in school the next day. Continue. So so it was hugely affecting in the way that I feel that chi- climate change uh, will be for, for my children and the children after them. It's very hard to imagine anything you can do about it. And yet what won that one won the day, it's not that the, the, the risk of nuclear war has vanished. It's probably higher than it's been in 20 years right now, uh, just because the world is so unsteady. It's not that the risk of nuclear war vanished, but it is the fact that through a very humane, positive, uh, 
uh, a kind of liberal spread of liberal capitalism and liberal liberal ideas the west won and the the kind of existential conflict between communism and the west vanished because we won it and i don't think we can win we're not going to win climate change in quite the same way but what can happen is it if you say okay we're committed to we're committed to a just world we're committed to you know reducing our energy use we're committed to going to sustainability to save and just just sort of say like we're going to act as if our small actions are going to make a difference it may be that in the end like that that creates political will around the globe we've seen under trump the fact that american that america has stepped back from its ideals and that america no longer is a bastion of of the ideals that's traditionally been has has emboldened these right-wing populist movements all over the world and has made us stand i mean you see it with this murder of this uh saudi saudi journalist like where we're sitting by and letting people get murdered uh in a way that we shouldn't but i think if we if we can get to a world where the right ideas continue to prosper it may be that we we make progress again in, on climate in the way that we because the right ideas prospered during the cold war we made progress on nuclear war that's my pipe dream well the only problem is that there was a consensus on both the left and the right that yep. the threat of nuclear war had to be managed and there were differing wildly differing theories about how to do it between carter and reagan but they both believed it needed to be done and yep. reagan in fact after he was shot, had a kind of vision about this being uh, reducing nuclear weapons as being, you know, a, a signature vision for his um, presidency because of just the annihilatory power that you described, David. And he committed himself to it. And while people, even well, left and right didn't like his methods, there was a consensus that the problem existed. But this would be as if Reagan right. came in and said, uh, there is no threat from nuclear war. And we need to build more more warheads, not because you could argue build more warheads to to bankrupt the Soviets. But that's not there's not an energy equivalent to that. I mean, because essentially the president is arguing for a for policies that exacerbate the problem. Um, and is there a problem, too, that, you know, for Reagan railing against the evil empire was like an exciting warlike thing to do, right? There is no human enemy in the same way here that you can claim that you're defeating and take on the um, mantle of, you know, an, a fighting, aggressive, bring out all your weapons president. Uh, right. And there's also not an, an ideological cause here. One of the things that was so helpful with disarmament or with the nuclear race is that it was an it was still an ideological struggle between commun the West and freedom, human rights, and and capitalism versus collectivism and the subjugation of human rights and the lack of freedom in the Soviet Union, and you could bundle all of that together, which you can't in this well, you can't in this case either. And there's no Star Wars version, you know. If President Trump had a kind of, I mean, I guess carbon sequestration is would be the equivalent, but the president, I don't think, is ever if he's ever mentioned it. I don't remember it. You know, in other words, there's not that kind of pie-in-the-sky solution. And I think also people would argue Star Wars actually was was effective. But anyway, the point is that... There isn't some, like, magic tool, exciting, bright, shiny new object right. in the same way that a politician could grab onto currently. Yeah. Let's end there. <laughs> Depressingly. Oh, no, we solved that problem. Didn't you notice? <laughs> yeah, we did. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And as part of your membership, which you can get by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you would hear today a segment we're going to do about the Tara Westover book, Educated, a wonderful book that all three of us have read in recent months. And we're going to 
talk about that. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and sign up today. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed in a narrow vote and then sworn on to the Supreme Court in a ceremony at the White House. I could not bring myself to watch that ceremony at the White House because it seemed icky. But in the weeks since since his confirmation, the story in politics has been about the effort by Republicans to turn Kavanaugh's victory into not just a win of a Supreme Court seat, and I would say the prize of a Supreme Court seat is worth an enormous amount of, of uh, lost political capital, but they're also trying to turn it into a political victory and something that will galvanize their voters. And they're doing this in part by depicting Democrats and Kavanaugh supporters as an angry mob and depicting the charges against Kavanaugh, the sexual assault charges, allegations brought against him as a despicable hit job. So, John, as a political measure, is this working? Is is the Are we going to look back on the Kavanaugh nomination and see something which, in fact, was galvanizing for Republican voters and useful for the 2018 midterms? And or are we going to look back and see something which which uh, helped Democrats and also raised awareness of of uh, sexual assault and the need to speak out about it? Or well, both. Uh, yeah, I was going to say or both is is possible. So I guess I would look at it, or the questions I'm asking myself are, are the following. One is short-term, long-term. So there does there is both reporting and conversations I've had with people involved in Republican politics who definitely saw a bump in support among Republicans for candidates. Fundraising was up. There was a rallying effect, not only to Kavanaugh, um, in fact, well beyond Kavanaugh, but to the cultural questions. And we know that cultural issues fire people up more than, hey, we gave you tax cuts. And it's culture of grievance, not culture of, hey, we're getting what we want. So the question then is, does that change? The grievance was these moralists on the left are denying us what we want, which is the set of policies that Kavanaugh was going to vote for on the on the court. But, but more directly and in your bones is kind of, are they... Uh, is this just the the left being moralists and um, and the, and they're reminding us of all the things we don't like about their values? That there is real evidence that that was happening. Both that shows up in the numbers and anecdotally. Now the question is: Does that la- how long does that last? Is it already through through the, the news cycle? Um, and then um, does the president? The president was going to stoke these fires from now until Election Day. So he's and we've seen him do it on everything from the national anthem um, to uh, policing, policing MS-13. It's always he's always going to play the values card somewhere. And so this is this is a nice moment, I think, uh, for him politically. I think two final things I would say. One, there, Brett, uh, Brett Stevens did write a piece in The New York Times that I thought offered a a possible lane to how this might be a sustained um, uh, moment, which is that he said for the first time, maybe the first time or first time in a long time, he appreciated President Trump because here was this blunt, powerful force punching and socking the the know-it-all liberals uh, in the nose. And, and, and he liked that. And so that is certainly what the president is. It's what he embodies. 
could people rally to that idea? I don't know. But it offered some kind of way in which you could take this moment and then say, yeah, I like this more broadly for the next thing. The second thing is if there was a benefit to the president. Um, well, actually, let's forget the second thing because I've been talking too much. <laughs> um, so I didn't read Brett Stevens's column. Is he basically making the owning the libs is the most important value? Like the triumph here and worth everything else no what he was saying essentially and he listed about eight different things is that he said that the the left went so overboard on kavanaugh that it started to to display in big ways abetted by the kind of media circus that surrounded it display uh, all of the things that he doesn't like about the left and that because it was attached to this very morally charged issue there was all the sanctimonious on the sanctimoniousness on the left he doesn't like, and that really the only way to beat that back was if you have a big force on your side, and that that was what he was grateful to have uh, President Trump for. Yeah, I mean, I guess there is some energy behind that, and you're right. The question is how lasting it is. I mean, part of what we're seeing in the polls is the polarization that often happens before an election, right? People start paying more attention, things tighten, they realize what's at stake, and they go back to their own party. Or they, or they get motivated to turn out when they were going to stay home. Exactly. Especially in midterm elections, the dynamic you were just talking about is probably more important than what I was saying. Um, it seems to me that looking at the individual races, the one that's most affected by this is the North Dakota Senate race, where we see Heidi Heidkamp taking a nosedive in the polls. Although Nate Silver also pointed out that North Dakota doesn't get polled very much or very well. And so it may be that the softness in her support was there all along, or maybe it's being exaggerated now. I find the month before an election to be such a frustrating time for trying to figure out what's going on because it seems to bounce around and the media narrative, you know, which right now is this idea of like, oh, maybe Kavanaugh helped the Republicans because that's sort of counterintuitive and interesting. I just can't tell how deep it goes and whether it's um, there are the, the forces that are at play, in fact, are deeper. And then I'm also just fascinated by how the gender gap is going to play out, because if Republican or independent women turn out and they do what they say they're going to do in the polls, then they should have the force to counter whatever white men are doing in coming home to the Republicans. The Part of this also is the wish being the father of the thought, which is that people like Mitch McConnell oh. are are saying, nice phrase. are saying, <laughs> oh, this is giving us a big boost and a big injection in order to get people to say, oh, I've gotten a boost. I've been injected. So, you know, that's a familiar game. Um, and, Absolutely. And uh, but I think where where the liberals and the Democrats um, need some where they seem to need a moment is um, I we tried to book a Democrat on Face the Nation on Sunday after uh, the Kavanaugh confirmation. We asked 20 Democratic senators None of them would show. And what's that about? I don't really I don't get that, quite honestly. Know. I don't quite know. I mean, part, could be like they don't want to be associated with the loss. Could be they felt like maybe they did go overboard and the whole Michael Avenatti, you know, Michael Avenatti turning this into a circus. Uh, they're, they're not responsible for Michael Avenatti. No, but they are. Res- no, out. they're not responsible for him, but they are responsible for the thing that they may agree had turned into a circus. And therefore, they didn't want to be associated with the circus in its in its current moment. Um and uh, so I don't know. I mean, these are uh, those are two, two those two things are guesses. But what I would have would have guessed, and it seems to me the Democrats need is somebody, some leader, whoever that leader is, to step forward and articulate 
what happened and how it should then be turned into effective action. Do they need to do that, though, or do they just need to change the subject and start talking about, like, jobs and wage stagnation and policy? Or health care. Yeah, yeah, they just need Somebody needs to step on stage and say... This weird, this thing happened. Here's how to think about it. Here's how to think next. Okay, and off we go. But who is, you know, that's not really happening. Right, and who would that person be? I mean, I guess what does seem to be the rule of thumb is that whenever elections turn more into being about a culture war, that helps the Republicans. Um, and then the question is how to diffuse that um, in the kind of way you're suggesting, John, or just by, like, having a message that resonates that is something different. I do think that... This has been like a long for a lot of people, like a kind of national nightmare with like a hangover attached to it. And that people I must speak for myself. I am eager to talk about other things. In fact, I can't even believe I let a Kavanaugh topic into the show this week. I'm so ready to move on. <laughs> well, and, and we should note the the, the obviously the richness of um the president talking about mobs when one of the things he's been quite successful at doing is creating a mob mentality the chance of lock her up it was it was i mean it's extraordinary that they were yelling lock her up about diane feinstein and hillary clinton after republicans successfully i think made the case for due process with their um their supreme court right and if you think about using anger as a weapon to make another obvious point brett kavanaugh did exactly that in his testimony so did many republicans like lindsey graham and rallying to his defense yeah. Don't you know that only white men are allowed to be angry, Emily? I Haven't really feel been like been around I am long enough to, to understand <laughs> that only white men get to express our aggrievement. Yeah, and I I thought I kind of knew that, and now I feel like my nose is being rubbed in it more and more every day. Can I, I still like you guys? One interesting thing about the House Senate split is that uh, Heidi Heitkamp is a perfect example, as Emily pointed out, and the way this bounces in Senate races could be quite different than the way it bounces in House races because a lot of the districts that are up and that are really on the knife's edge are ones in which you have uh, big suburban um, voting populations where the women are not... Um, uh, as enthusiasts, you know, are, may vote for the Democrat or may not turn out for the Republican. And so where the believing Dr. Ford or at least believing accusers is more of a um, is, is not something you have to defend in those districts. Whereas, you know, in North Dakota, at least based on Jonathan Martin's reporting, both in the paper and on the daily, you know, there were he was running into a lot of people who were saying, you know, kind of not only pro Kavanaugh, but kind of anti this idea that women needed that accusers needed to be automatically believed women are a problem we are just a problem everyone would be better off if we just went home and were quiet again it's why why do when we talk about the gender divide do we always talk about it as women supporting democrats and fleeing republicans why isn't it the other way like to me the gender divide is there's something really weird and wrong with men that they are so, so conservative and so defensive. I guess they're what you know. The, the, the Republicans are protecting white privilege and the and the benefits that being a, a prosperous white white guy has offered for all these centuries. And so, naturally, white men tend to sort in that direction. But I guess I, what I'm saying is the gender divide. Let's not talk about the gender divide as being something that's about women. It's about both groups. Sure. Good point. Um, just quickly, either one of you, what do you make of, think of, 
the idea articulated both by Michael Avenatti and Eric Holder that that Eric Holder said, you know, Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. No, that's not wrong. That's not right. When they go low, we kick them. Um, I was talking to a Republican who said what he saw in Avenatti was uh, just basically Donald Trump, like a guy who who Democrats are angry at because he muddied up the, the Dr. Ford's testimony, but that Avenatti could eat, clearly say, look, at least I was out there fighting and I'm out there fighting for us. And, you know, who else is out there fighting like this? And remember, Donald Trump had a huge embarrassment, a national he was a national clown after the um, uh, birtherism went, you know, when he was America's chief birther and then President Obama released his birth certificate, you know, d- d- Donald Trump was a national punchline and he's now the president. So in other words, Avenatti, if he was seen to have had a, a problem here, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of your career. I cannot stand the lionization of Avenatti and the comparison to Trump and the idea that that's the only way to fight. There are plenty of very aggressive, very effective, combative people on the left. I would Elizabeth Warren is somebody who every time I hear Elizabeth Warren speak, every time I listen to something she said or read something she's written, I'm impressed with how simultaneously aggressive and yet smart and she is. I don't think the model has to be Donald Trump. You can be a, a tough-minded opponent of what Trump is doing to the country without being exactly like him. And and I think Democrats are deluding themselves that they think Avenatti is the solution. The solution is not there. The solution is is someone, probably a woman, who is is very, very tough, but not a clown. That is the lesson from Italy and how Silvio Berlusconi was eventually defeated. It wasn't with another clown. It was with someone who was like a sober sides policy wonk kind of candidate. And, you know, in order to believe the theory that Avenatti is like the Trump savior for the Democrats, you have to want the Democrats to go off into conspiracy theory, irrational land. Um, I would prefer that not happen. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Let us move on. Taylor Swift urged fans to vote in an American Music Awards speech, then followed up with an Instagram post to 100 plus million followers urging them to vote, to register to vote, to go to vote.org and sign up to vote. And and she herself said she would vote for Democratic candidates in Tennessee, Phil Bredesen and Jim Cooper for the Senate and House. There has been since a real spike of registrations at vote.org, the place she pointed her fans to on the order of 250,000 registrants since she did it, disproportionately young voters, a lot in Tennessee. There is some 
ambiguity about whether she's responsible for all of that. There's the the numbers at vote.org tend to grow uh, in general. The deadlines to to register to vote were approaching and you'd expect a surge. But but I think almost everyone thinks that a significant chunk of that surge can be attributed to Swift. Meanwhile, we have Kanye West wearing uh, MAGA hats and dining at the White House and says, saying he loves Trump's energy. So are Swift and West the same? And is their, is their involvement in politics the same, Emily? I mean, they both have political views that they're expressing. I think Taylor Swift is trying to energize people who might stay home. And there's a constituency of people who it seems like she's helped to mobilize. And she's also talking about just like the idea of participating in the political process, right? I mean, I really love that Tracy Ellis Ross at some recent award ceremony was wearing a T-shirt that said, I am a voter. And I think just the whole idea of making it seem like part of what you do is a natural act of citizenship in the United States is like you go to the polls regularly. Like that's part of being an American and we should all do it together and hold hands. I I'm like desperate for that kind of engagement. Here is an idea along those lines, which I pretty sure comes from my children, which is like, you know, how you can have how Facebook or various social media platforms make uh, um, something that you put on your back screen or like on the back of your profile photo, like the rainbow flag at a moment where LGBTQ rights is in the news, whatever. Like, let's have something like that for voting so that people are identifying as voters on social media in a way that then like makes that the thing that you're supposed to do. It just like normalizes it and makes it seem appealing. I John, my sense is that Taylor Swift had a disproportionate impact because she's white, because a lot of people on the right secretly thought she was one of them, or maybe not so secretly thought she was one of them. And she's been very guarded about her views. She's never she's never um, spoken out much politically. And I think a lot of people thought that was because she might be secretly quite conservative. And so that it was a, there was a surprise factor there. Do you, do you first of all, do you think this did the amount of registration seem inordinate to you? And do you think that that anyone else could have had such an impact? I don't know that anybody else could have had an impact. I mean, part of the impact, of course, was bumped by bumped up by the fact that 18 states had some type of registration deadline on Tuesday. So there was a lot of, um, including Tennessee. So there was a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of oomph that came not just from her, but it was an oomph. You know, it's a lot of oomph. Now, the... The thing is, once you're registered, then are you actually going to go vote and that kind of thing? So we'll just we'll just have to see. I'm I was actually surprised it was as big as it as it was. Um, did that was that because people had a previous notion of what her views were? I don't know. Probably more was just that she has this enormous hold over the culture, um, and people really listen. Um, but what does that mean, listening, you know, and how many people who registered would not have otherwise have registered? Um, and do they go to the polls? Yeah. And the big one then, of course, is do they go to the polls? Usually when you pull out celebrities, it doesn't really matter, except when you can get them to come to your rally. And then when they go to the rally, you get the people who came to the rally just to see the celebrity. And then you <laughs> then you never let them go until you walk them to the polls, basically. And <laughs> And that's... Um, that didn't happen here. On the other hand, depending on the state you're in, there may, you know, they will see who the new registrants are and, you know, and if, if they can mobilize enough, it's tricky in a non-presidential, you know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll, maybe it'll matter. 
one other thing is the voters who registered have to register in the right states and districts for it to matter. So uh, although Tennessee ten- is the tennis- right yeah, state, <laughs> Tennessee will matter. Although Bredesen is now down by a lot, but we'll see where things are in a week. But by like five, right? Yeah, I guess I was thinking. I was uh, sorry. I was thinking more of Hyde Camp, who's down by ten. So yeah, he's down. He's down by um, in single digits. But um, anyway, so it just they, people have to register in the right places for it to matter. Republicans tend to be ambivalent about celebrities basically because there aren't many celebrities who are conservative, whereas Democrats really do love them. But Trump is sort of the exception. Trump desperately wants celebrities to support him, but of course they don't, and it, it kind of drives him crazy. And so whenever he finds one that does, it, he he gets very excited, as with Kanye, I think. One of the things that I find charming about Taylor Swift, actually, who I, whose music I used to love and now I don't like all her new music, but whatever. But one of the things I find her intensely charming about her is that she her story is in a sense the story of of america or a story of women it's that she she's sort of representing a rural ideal her music is a country it's a very conservative genre uh she's living in tennessee she's writing songs about boys and trucks and then she moves to new york and becomes a liberal sybarite and now now represents sort of uh all these urban urban culture as opposed to the rural culture that she built her career on and so with her it's dance music triumphing over country music i'm not sure i really like that theory of america because it seems to me like country music can keep triumphing um but i take your point about taylor swift i was i mean i would much rather the country music triumph i would i would be thrilled (laughs) if if all she did was record country songs but yeah i like her country songs i was going to make a different sort of warning point based on reporting i did after the 2016 election which is when i was interviewing women who'd voted for trump women who'd gone to college and lived in pennsylvania they were really pissed off at katy perry as the celebrity who'd come out for hillary clinton and just felt like hey who do you think buys your music and you know why are you telling me i'm wrong and why are you telling me what to do at all so i wonder if it's possible there could be a kind of backlash although on the other hand the fact that swift wasn't talking at all about trump and was instead talking about the senate and congress could insulate her from having right. that unintended effect well, and i was when when you were talking about putting voting up on your on your facebook page i was thinking through what it means to essentially make registering to vote the what is implicit in that is that you are a democrat or that you are anti-trump but you but don't it, but no it, you shouldn't sure, be right sure, it should sure, just sure. be about process and participation but isn't that what it's coming isn't that what it in some of these cases, that's what it means. I mean, that's what everybody are hearing is hearing her say. Well, because she endorsed two sure, Democrats. That's right. I right. guess what I'm trying to do is separate them out a little yeah. bit. Um, but you're right. The way she did well, it but does also, have that it's, attached to I it. mean, everyone is hearing her say that even if she didn't endorse a Democrat and she just said vote, that these days that actually does signal Democrat because Well, Democrats young, tend to do better when to more get people vote. Young people to vote and young people are disproportionately liberal. And because the Republican Party has made this really conscious effort to limit voting across the board and make it more difficult for people to vote. So when you encourage people to vote, it is, in fact, a political statement. And yet, at the, the only same time, sl- I think we need to hold on to the idea that voting is not a part. Asking people to vote is not a partisan act. It is about improving and strengthening the democracy, no matter right. how you vote. Like, I think that's crucial to hang on to in all of this. The only celebrity I want to hear from now is The Rock. I want The Rock to come out and say something. I feel like the rock, the rock could move mountains. That's my hope. All right. We'll see what happens, David. You're on your own, but okay.
Uh, let us go to cocktail chatter. So I have some dire news to report, GAFS listeners, which is I, I was talking last week about my new martini habit. This martini habit has become very dangerous, so I may have to completely shift. I, I've, the, I've now had like three martinis before dinner this past week, and they're so good. And Wait, it's, three it's on one be, day? It's going to be catastrophic. No, not days. three. In, no, three. No, I'm enjoying it so much. <laughs> I'm really worried about how much I'm enjoying it. Maybe you it. just need to have fact, a drink before dinner. That is like a thing people have done for generations. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. If you want to beat yourself up about your one martini three nights in one week, go ahead. Well, then I've, one of them I followed with a jello shot because the, the bar I was at was apologizing for being late uh, with my drink. And TMI. so they brought us a jello shot. So I had, <laughs> Who needs yeah. to know all about this? Gap what has, is your cocktail chatter? Gap fell, Gapfest listeners who I'm have been chattering about my David's cocktails. Decline Come on. Should mark this. Seriously. I, all right, fine. John, what's your chatter? My chatter could be totally apocryphal, um, and it's so it's so kind of sentimental that it probably is in this um, world of of uh, falling shadows and uh, coldness and darkness. But um, nevertheless, it's from I saw and I found it on Twitter too, which is like another thing that does not recommend it. But it is a it's a it's a missed connections on Craigslist, and you should just read it. You can find it on uberfacts.com, which is a site I don't even know. But um, it is about a chance meeting in 1972 uh, from a Vietnam veteran and a woman who was uh, having issues with her fiancé and how this Vietnam vet says it changed his life. And so even if it is totally apocryphal and made up, the... um, the idea that somebody would put energy into trying to create this kind of story, which is basically formed around the salvation and saving power of human connection, even when it's in short, brief moments, seems to me to be something that's worthwhile, even if you don't, even if the specific misconnection here is not, uh, turns out not to be true. Labaz, what is your chatter? I was so heartened this morning by a project that just went up in the New York Times called This Is 18. Um, The Times sent photographers all over the world to take pictures of young women turning 18 and do interviews with them about their lives, about their hopes, their ambitions, their fears for the world. It's just amazing to see these totally varied people from all over the place at the cusp of adulthood, thinking through what it means to be a girl kind of on the verge of womanhood right now. It was just the shot in the arm that I needed. I recommend it. It's, I think, nytimes.com slash this is 18. My chatter, also inspirational, a book by a man named James Mustich. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Called A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die. And I know you're thinking, oh, I've seen those thousand things before, before dying, before, bleh, I don't want it. This is wonderful. He's a, a reader of such joy and buoyancy. He's not one of these crabbed people lording it over you or condescending about how much more he knows than you or pedantic. He has compiled a, over 948 magnificent pages, well-illustrated, great books of fiction and nonfiction, the high and the low. There's a Dan Brown book on there. My God, the Da Vinci Code is in there. The familiar and the highly unfamiliar. And he has a real knack for recognizing what in a book is wonderful. It is 
about as good a bathroom book re- read as I can imagine. It's 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 so much fun. He's a he's a spirit you want to spend time with. So please check out a thousand books to read before you die. David Plotz, how many of those Wait. books have you already read? How many of those books have I already read? A lot fewer than I thought. I would Wait. probably bet a hundred fifty, maybe. Is is it a book itself or is it an article? It's a book. It's a book. It's a book about it's a book. books. It's a book about books. Yeah. All right. So does yeah. that make it thousand and one? <laughs> he didn't say you have to read his book, did he? Well, but but you won't know how to read the other thousand without having read his. Hmm. <laughs> oh dear. We'll put that in the conundrum show. Oh my god. Mm, exactly. Next Are you done? Question. Are you done? <laughs> I want to talk about my martinis. I'd rather talk about my martinis no, than you. I'm, I'm done with your martinis. Nitpicking. Let's talk about Tara Westover's book, Educated. Also, this week, we have a great crop of listener chatters. You guys are tweeting them to us at, at @slategabfest, and some of you are putting them on Facebook at facebook.com slash gabfest, where something you have found wonderful, interesting, fascinating, troubling, uh, something worthy of discussion when you're having your seventh martini with me. So, uh, Sarah Ann Eckhart via Facebook sent us a link to a really weird, wonderful story in the Washington Post, which is a story about some thieves who stole 7,000 items from a Philadelphia museum. And you're like, oh, how can you steal 7,000 items from a Philadelphia museum? Those 7,000 items were living insects. They stole all these rare living insects from this museum which and presumably these insects will then be passed on to collectors who like to own weird hissing cockroaches and find it hard to get them otherwise and the idea that there's this massive bug theft uh was totally weird and enthralling and i hope those thieves get caught or that they get bitten a lot that they get stung and bitten and and then return those insects to whence they came that is our show for today the Political Gab Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet some cocktail chatter at us. There's a new head of Slate Podcasting, Gabriel Roth. Congratulations. As Steve Lichtai heads off to a great new job at NBC and MSNBC, we wish him the best of luck and we welcome Gabe as our new overlord. Anything we can do to please you, Gabe, we will do. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Come to our conundrum show on December 12th in New York. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. We will talk to you next week and we'll see you when we do conundrums in December. Bye-bye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply